We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 151. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we bring on Dr. Bill White to talk about his recent paper on risk management. Let's get to it. All right, everybody, welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast. And I just want to say, if you're listening to this in audio, we are now also recording video for most of these shows. So head over to youtube.com forward slash arcpodnet to watch us record this podcast. You're not going to see anything real special except our ugly mugs. But otherwise, you know, go over there, check it out. Maybe it's a different way to listen to this podcast. It's going to be out basically at the same time as the audio version is. And I'll always call it out because sometimes we might have guests that prefer to not do video. So when we can do video, we will. Let me introduce my co-host, Paul. How's it going? It's going okay. Nothing really dramatic to talk about this week. Yeah, normally I have some complaints <laughs> about all the online stuff and all those complaints, you know, they still pertain, they still hold, but no, nothing dramatic happened lately. How, how are things with you? Where are you now? We are in Jekyll Island, Georgia, which mm-hmm. is a, a really nice, idyllic, kind of picturesque, almost like this whole island is like a state park, except people live here. There's a grocery store and other things, but it's just a really really kind of a cool place. It's really, really neat. We're going to be in uh, kind of funny thing. We're going to be in Charlotte, North Carolina next week. And we were supposed to be there for three full weeks, but we had a trip canceled last year to Cancun and turns out all the credits and stuff we got for that were starting to expire. So yesterday we rescheduled it. And in a week and a half, we're going to Cancun (laughs) for a week. So we'll see how that goes. (laughs) Anyway, We're going to have a a little bit of a different episode. For those of you watching the video, you can see my friend, Dr. Bill White, sitting there, and he is a co-host of mine on the CRM Archaeology podcast. He's waving for those of you listening to the audio version of this. And a a recent issue of SAA Advances in Archaeological Practice came out. In fact, it's 2021 here and February 2021. I think it's volume, volume nine, it looks like. And one of the articles was from... Bill. And the article is called Applying Risk Management Concepts from CRM and the Outdoor Recreation Industry to Academic Archaeology Projects. And, you know, this entire issue of SA Advances, Advances is usually a more tech-focused issue on different things in archaeology. And this entire issue is focused almost solely on safety, environmental health and safety, and risk management like Bill wrote about here. And I figured as somewhat of a public service announcement, we would go ahead and talk about on this show. It's a little less tech-focused, but I think that it is pertinent to our audience and that we would have this discussion. So welcome, Bill. How's it going? Doing well, doing well. <laughs> still still in the digital universe, you know. I feel like it's Tron every day, I guess, these days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice, nice. So without without Daft seems- Punk, just masks, not Daft Punk. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So with this being a slightly different issue of SA Advances, why don't you start by telling us how this came together? What was the impetus for this issue and how'd you get involved? Sure. It's pretty interesting that, you know, you would ask that because you ended up being in the same room when the idea for this was pitched because (laughs) in 2019, I think at the SAA, I was in the book room and I was think maybe on my way to talking to you or uh, I had just spoken or something like that. And Carla Clem and her partner, Kurt Eifling, they noticed that I had done a series on my blog about health and safety plans for cultural resources And, you know, in the beginning when I was first starting it, it was when I was working for companies and we had to make these site-specific health and safety plans. And I was, you know, part of a group of folks that were like, you know, building the the resource pages because the idea was as we go into more and more sites, you know, as we move from a mine to this, to this, you know, power plant to this and that, the hazards will change and the landscapes will change, but we can put together kind of like a toolkit of different pages with the hazards. And then we can kind of use those to put together into the safety binders that we're supposed to be carrying around. And I was doing that work and I wrote a blog post about health and safety manuals because until that point, and I think it was like when I was writing this stuff was maybe 2012 or something like that. It seemed like we were working for clients that had health and safety stuff. And then our companies was just like 
swimming to something or floundering around and grabbing a life <laughs> preserver and putting together some kind of safety plan for this mine or for working in this valley or something. And it always seemed like it was kind of haphazard and it never seemed like it was really fully put together. But the employer I had at the time, they were being pushed more and more by their clients to have these kind of health and safety, you know, programs and tracking and stuff like that. And so I wrote a blog post on it and I guess they had read it. And so Carl and Carla approached me about putting together kind of a thematic edition about health and safety in the field. And, you mm -hmm. know, it, it was it was a great idea when it was pitched. And this, it's taken two years to finally get published. But what's <laughs> cool about the entire pathway is it went from just kind of like, staying safe outside and being in the field to addressing issues of mental health and addressing, you know, toxic yeah. sediments and stuff like that. I mean, it, it's really gotten uh, several different contributions that have made this thing much more holistic, I guess, or comprehensive than it was when it was originally pitched. Yeah, that's really good. Cause I, and I hope that this gets out to a wider audience through your guys' own networks, because as people listening to this may soon realize, it's behind the Society for American Archaeology paywall. So if you're not a member and you don't have access to the journal, then you can't see some of this stuff. So, you know, that's why I wanted to, another reason I wanted to talk about this on the podcast, right? Because this is a way to yeah. get some of this information out there. And, and, and uh, I don't want to say bypass the paywall, but at least get the information out there to, to people. So that's good. Sure. Well, I will say your article, Bill, has, and we're going to talk about it and some of the some of the features within your article. And and before I get to this, it's very forefront of my mind. I'm not doing a ton of field projects these days, but some of the ones that I am doing, <laughs> uh, well, you know, some of the ones I am doing are in some pretty dangerous areas. And last September, we did a project on a mine up in northeastern Nevada. Last April, we did one on a military base that tests ammunition and ordnance. And there's also rattlesnakes and things like that. And so these projects and, and that mine that I worked on last late last summer, early fall, we've got another project with them coming up here in the summertime that's probably going to take about two months. Now, this is a high desert environment around really dangerous haul trucks and other massive equipment, not to mention hunters are, are out there pretty consistently on this property because it's also BLM slash Forest Service property. And you've got dangerous places to drive, dangerous places to go, dangerous places to be. You could you could easily twist your ankle or something like that in the middle of literally nowhere and be down in a dip that's far enough to where even the mine radio might not be able to call out. And it's just you got to know how to solve these problems. So we're we're creating a health and safety plan for this, even though we've got one from last time, we're creating another one for this facet of the project because you have to, mm -hmm. and, and everybody needs to be aware of what's going on. So this is really timely. Yeah. I mean, it did come out at a perfect time, but also, you know, the entire idea of me writing this one is coming from a long career path of being in situations where all mm -hmm. kinds of stuff went down, like uh, repetitive use or repetitive motion injuries. Yeah. It's like an absolutely common thing in archaeology and the you know motivation or pressure to keep working through pain and stuff like that. There's a lot of folks that have a lot of injuries that we get out there in the field and then we just keep toughing it out because we don't want to miss a day of work or something like that. That by the time you're my age, now there are serious complications, right? Like you have, you know, problems with your joints, problems with your arms and back because they came from injuries and you never rehabilitated them because there was no system for that. Of course, doing historical archaeology digging through historical garbage. And, you know, our people that came before us, they didn't have the same concerns about, you know, dumping a bunch of arsenic in the ground or pouring antifreeze and battery acid and all kinds of stuff on the ground. And that stuff's there. That's just stuff that's at historical sites. That's not even taking into account stuff that's environmental pollutants and things that have happened during the recent period where people leave, you know, all kinds of waste and stuff. I've seen, I've been out there and seen like right at the edge of BLM land, just haphazard piles of paint dumped on someone's private mm -hmm. property right at the edge of public land. So technically not on public land, but just piled, you know, and all kinds of old rusted cans of stuff just right there in your, you know, right at the edge of your project area. And, and, you know, just if you've seen that kind of stuff and you're the one who's out there in charge, what do you end up doing? <laughs> right. I mean, what do you do if you're out in the forest and someone's wrist is kind of hurting, right? Does that mean that they have yeah. an injury? Does that mean that we need to report it? Does that mean that that person needs to take a break or something like that? Because they might not be telling you the truth that they've kind of broken their wrist. And that actually did happen. Broke 
hairline fractures mm-hmm. in their wrist from digging with crappy equipment and just kept powering through until the weekend. And the next thing you know, they're in the hospital with a, a cast and stuff like that and filing a workman's comp complaint. And so there's that, you right. know, but just the overall mentality of many companies that are kind of now realizing that health and safety plans aren't really an option anymore. And I think COVID is what pushed people into the mm-hmm. the camp of this isn't just extra icing on the cake. This is a piece of work that needs to exist for every company because there was, you know, state and local and everything range of laws on how close we could be and all this stuff. And CRM never skipped a beat when it came to working through COVID because, you know, many companies were essential workers. And in the process, it was like zero to 180 miles an hour on getting a health and safety plan (laughs) up. Like it needs to be up and it needs to exist and it needs to cover COVID, which, you know, is great because that adds in a whole bunch of other stuff that we should have been concerned about. And, you know, I, I feel like now is the time when having these kind of things, discussions and stuff like that, if you're working at a company that doesn't have that stuff, like you're way behind the curve and, you know, you could be losing money because state and mm-hmm. local governments are going to want to see that plan and their clients are going to want to see that plan. And if you don't have it, you're you're not there yet. Now, your article specifically talks about plans kind of in the way that Chris was talking just now about you go on a mine site, for example, you have your military base, whatever, you, you tend to have very strict, you know, you can do this, you can do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. If you're going to do this, you have to inform this person protocols for, for very specific situations. But your article was talking about not just that kind of plan, but also more organic leadership-based kinds of approaches to health and safety on projects. Could you could you address that a little bit, what, what you're trying to get at with that different, you know, slightly different take on uh, on how to deal with these? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. This, my piece, you know, focusing on leadership, it really kind of goes along with a couple of the other additions here, like the ones that are specifically talking about safe field schools, wilderness medicine education, and, you know, recommendations for uh, grad students directing field projects. Because as someone who worked in cultural resources for a long time, I watched the trend towards health and safety in the field and then got to work at universities where they're kind of like, you know, what do you mean health and safety? And then you go online and type in risk management university. And there's this entire course and checklist of everything that you're supposed to handle. If you're doing any kind of university work and folks just look at that, like, well, wait, where did that come from? And you're saying, I don't know. It's been updated since 1993. Like, how did you not know that our company has these kind of policies that we're supposed to be doing? And so a lot of times for archaeologists that are working in academia, not only are they, we're totally overworked and have no time to think about really anything else, but we're existing at universities where there's people who are paid all day, all the time to think about risk management or making it Mm -hmm. ever more complex web of requirements of things. And so you end up in a situation where a lot of archaeology field work is just out of compliance with their own institution. And so, you know, there's definitely a, a fiduciary responsibility. Student gets hurt out there. The, you know, university gets sued because the the professor or the people, the graduate students running that thing just let a person get hurt. Those people get a paycheck from the university and then the professors are now in trouble because they didn't pay attention to the existing policies in their own thing. But also kind of the idea that as a leader, you would try to conduct yourself in a safe and ethical way to keep people from getting hurt. Because there's the other side that it's like, you know, rules, we don't need no stinking rules. What are you talking about? We're out here and we're just digging and this is our adventure time, right? Away from our desks and we're getting to do adventure. Well, I guess, you know, we can do adventure and everything, but like, I'm pretty sure we shouldn't be having students who aren't, they don't really have the power and they're supposed to be learning about how to do field work from the example of people they're working with. And so if those people are unaware, aloof, and then kind of disregarding of regulations and rules for the own institution, not only are they getting themselves in trouble, they're teaching other people bad things to do in the field. Yeah. And to round out the end of this segment here, let's talk about some of the other risks. You mentioned some risks. I want to talk about some of the other risks so we can have a common frame of reference here because, mm-hmm. you know, as you've alluded to, again, you guys are often working with students, people who it's their first time coming in the field. And that's the relationship to like wildlife experience trainers and stuff like that. Right, A lot of times it's for people's first experience doing mm-hmm. that. 
and there's a lot of parallels there, but some of our risks are are pretty severe, right? Not just some of the, the repetitive motion stuff, but like some <laughs> things that you might not even think about. Like if you're screening on a site, silicosis is a really huge thing. If you're digging in certain areas, mm-hmm. there could be some stuff like, uh, what is it? The uh, the hantavirus that comes up when you're in California, digging in soils mm-hmm. down there. Mm-hmm. That can be disrupted and brought up. Certain other like molds and funguses and, and stuff like that. And then let's just, the elephant in the room here, people like to have fun on archaeology projects because, well, they like to have fun. And even if you've been doing this for 10 or 15 years, a lot of times you're in this business because it's a passion. You like to have fun. You don't even see it as a job a lot of the times. And people drink and then they come to work. You know, I wouldn't say drunk, but it happens. But they definitely come to work and experience these same risks, these same hazards in an impaired situation. And it is just phenomenal to me that more people don't get more severely injured on projects to be honest well i mean so we won't really necessarily know how severe people are getting injured if we don't have a health and safety tracking system that's monitoring reported injuries and stuff like that and trying to work towards right Mm -hmm. so if you don't have that then you actually have no idea how many people got a hernia or how many people (laughs) you know cut themselves and got an infection right because they never told you and you're not tracking it you're not tracking near misses either like the times that people are backing up a truck because they're not used to driving a truck and they drive over someone's backpack who's standing right there like that's not good. Yeah. If that person had been two feet away, they would have gotten parts of their body driven over. And that's the kind of stuff that doesn't even, mm-hmm. wow, that was a close call. No, that wasn't a close call. <laughs> that was like someone not checking to make sure debris is right next to the wheels of the truck. We need to get back home at the end of the day. What if we drive over a creosote stump or a bush or you drive over a rock and we get a flat out here? Like, come on, you got to be paying more attention. But the other thing that, especially when we're talking about field school is the kind of psychological and emotional thing that ends up happening to people because you know we're not talking about ancient guys that have been here like us you know for many times and done it many times right we're talking about people who are young who have never been out in the field like this who have never been in the situation and then they possibly might have some diagnosed mental illnesses and, and just chronic illnesses in general and they're trying to treat them in the middle of nowhere, right? So those are a whole nother range of stuff that doesn't even get mentioned in archaeology. That's absolutely real when you're dealing with students. Good. Well, let's go to break. And when we come back, we can talk a little more about, you know, what kinds of risks, what kinds of dangers you're trying to mitigate and, and you know, explore this a little deeper. And also, I got to say, thanks. You started bringing data at the end there. And that's right up my alley. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 151. And I am on with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman and Dr. Bill White of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And oh yeah, he also does that thing at Berkeley. So, but really the CRM Archaeology <laughs> Podcast. So, and I... 
I, I got to pause right there because I was reading your article, Bill, and I saw I like had to do a double take because I think on the first page I was looking at the citation and it said Webster et al. 2020A and 2020B. I was like, wait, what? And I, I <laughs> down and went down and it, I don't know if this is the first time the podcast has been cited in a in an article for the SAAs, but it's definitely the first time I've seen it. <laughs> I've just cited once, cited twice, my friend. <laughs> oh my god, I know it's amazing. <laughs> I love it. Which which is good because if, if anybody's really wants to know about some of these CRM issues that we talk about, Bill was on the podcast with me from day one, and we've been you know over two hundred episodes and doing this for what eight nine years now mm-hmm. on this podcast. So it's the longest running show on the Archaeology Podcast Network, and um, we went all the way from you know Bill just having a master's degree and like one kid to a PhD mm-hmm. and an additional kid. So yep. I mean that's how far we've come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, you know, I want to bring up something that you were mentioning at the end of the last segment, Bill, about us not really tracking this stuff very well. How do we know what we're doing in the field and the industry if we're not tracking these sorts of things? Now, of course, OSHA is tracking some of these things, but mm-hmm. those aren't the kind of statistics that we can really get our hands on. And there are plenty of risks and hazards and, and incidents that take place on a, on a workplace that aren't reportable to OSHA. Right. Mm-hmm. So there, there's mm-hmm. lots of things. And coincidentally, my experience working with WildNote, which we've mentioned many times here, doing basically implementation and form design for clients of WildNote and for WildNote itself in archaeology kind of got me the the current job that I've got now, which is, again, still kind of a side thing in addition to everything else I'm doing, working with a health and safety company called Dunsafe out of Australia. And they were just purchased by the a year ago by the Health and Safety Institute, which a lot of people take their OSHA 10 and 30 hour, their MSHA training. A lot of that online training is actually done by the Health and Safety Institute because they own Vivid Learning Systems, which is what a lot of people take their online training through. So I'm saying that because, man, all this stuff is really fresh on my mind because my day to day now is working with clients, building their health and safety system using the digital platform of Dunsafe. And our bread and butter is tracking and reporting on incident types, near misses, and all this stuff. And just about every other industry out there, and I've got clients from the food industry to, you know, heavy construction to, you know, delivery trucks, and they all want to know in excruciating detail what kinds of incidents they've had in, in various time frames and how they're doing and, and what kind of mitigation strategies they're doing around that. And in, in 12, 13 plus years of working in CRM, I have never seen any sort of tracking system whatsoever mm-hmm. if any company yeah. I've ever worked for. And it's insane. I just can't believe it. Yeah, no, I did work for a company. That's what put me on the path, right? It's from haphazardly putting together health and safety plans <laughs> to a company that did have a safety officer that was, you know, an occupational hygienist that used to work for mines that was tracking it. And so it wasn't like we mm-hmm. were just filling out the forms and then giving them and putting them in a thing somewhere. And no one was even like looking at them. There was someone whose job was to look at all that stuff. And that's where we got to the point where it was kind of like, you know, the difficulty for archaeology is that it's in so many different terrains and locations and the mm-hmm. hazards vary even like multiple times a day compared to, you know, working on a mine site. I mean, you're going to the mine site, you go to the building where this activity happens. Here's the range of things that could possibly happen in that building. Or you're, you know, going out towards the pit. Here's everything that could happen on the hall road, everything that could happen in the open pit, and then everything that can happen back on the hall road. But archaeologists are going from that building to like the hall road around that pit to a hill out there that's next to this to onto that. Right. And that's and that it was like too complicated a lot of times for them to build those kind of mine safety ones. And that's why I also recommend that, you know, we don't really aim for making these kind of really structured health and safety plans as if I was sitting at my cubicle and there was only a, this range of injuries that could happen that you do start thinking, you know, as a leader and start looking at the potential hazards and then being able to assess what's the, what's the uh, probability of this happening or, you know, how likely is it that someone who's never shoveled before is going to hurt their arms on day one of doing this for five hours? Like what's the likelihood? Pretty likely, right? So maybe we should try to ease people in or, you know, what's the likelihood if we're traveling across landscape where we know there's rattlesnakes and it's the spring and they're all hungry and they're all mating that we're going to see a rattlesnake pretty likely they're not going to be hiding. Mm-hmm. They're going to be out there. So like, you know, being aware of that kind of stuff 
means that then you have that page, but then you also know how to avoid those hazards. And that only that only comes from people thinking proactively. You know, in the article, you talk about the current state of archaeological risk management programs and and what they focus on identifying potential risks and you know if they exist at all they're they're identifying you know physical risks chemical biological field hazards and other things and then you mention also one thing that maybe is not taken into account as much but that's the human factor can you explain that a little bit yeah so that's kind of the main piece of the entire article because that's the piece mm-hmm. that comes from the National Outdoor Leadership School that the article is about taking concepts from NOLS and then applying them in archaeology fieldwork. And and it came from me taking a workshop series um, for about, I think, three days or something like that. And it was with all these other field scientists from the UC system. And we took these NOLS trainings. And also my um, backcountry first aid courses were through NOLS, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, they when you go to those kind of leadership ones, they emphasize that it's not possible for you to know every single possible risk that would ever happen to any single person. And, you know, that a lot of uh, archaeology companies, they kind of aim for what are all the 9,000 risks that come with shoveling? What are the 9,000 risks that come with walking? And then they kind of make these guides for that. And, And I found that the University of California system, they also do that because they're also spending a lot of time on people working in these different you know, locations. And so their risk management system is really designed for someone to have one task in one environment and that to be the same until they get another position and then they get trained for all the risks for that environment. And then you get another one, right? Well, archaeology doesn't work like that. So you have to have more of a flexible, proactive thing. So the NOLS has years and years of tracking injuries in all different kinds of environments on the sea, in the Arctic, in different countries, in different parts of the United States. And in all their tracking, they can almost always go back through these injury incident things to like a time when the human factor came into play. Either the individual mm-hmm. made a decision that you know was life-threatening for themselves, or the person who should have responded in a certain way did not follow their training, or they you know underestimated something or took made a bad estimation and that's what ended up in the near miss or ended up in the person getting injured and so that was where that whole thing comes with maybe not planning for every single thing but based on your experience of the past predicting the likelihood and then leading people away from possible danger to increase Mm -hmm. your chances of you know diminishing danger yeah, one of the things you mentioned in that segment is how essentially the a well-trained project leadership will impact the students and how they see, you know, health and safety. If their leaders are out screwing around and not paying attention to the risks, but saying, do as I say, not as I do, then it's not going to reflect well and people aren't going to pay attention. So, you know, proper leadership and training is, as with everything, probably one of the most important things you can do. Yeah, that applies too for other kinds of behavior that don't lead to necessarily like physical risk, but uh, things like sexual harassment and so on. If you've got the the leaders of the project going out and getting drunk with their students and (laughs) behaving inappropriately, that sets the tone for the whole project. And I've certainly seen behavior like that in the field Mm -hmm. in academia. Yeah, academia can kind of be a mixed bag, right? Where sometimes the instructors are just along with the students, you know, doing that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. Or there's like kind of a turn your cheek and let the students live and just live your own life because you're in a separate cabin or in your separate, you know, tent or building. And the students are kind of left to their own vices. And, and, you know, I I take, I I mean, there's got to be like a middle ground, right? So it's rough if you have to be in the same apartment with the students because <laughs> it would be, you know, as if you went back to road rules, right? And like now we're in the road rules house again and you're shaking your head like these aren't even really issues. You know what I'm saying? Like anyway, being in that and then also having to be like the the instructor too. So there's that whole when something goes down and it's in your apartment, like you were the one who should have stopped it from everyone. That should have never happened because you've been empowered by the university to never let a student get harmed. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't control what people are doing, you know, out and about and all this, everything else. That's where the leadership and kind of like internalizing what are going to be the impacts of me taking this behavior, what's going to happen to me. And, you know, university falls in a 
a gray area, especially students, like student leaders fall in a gray area specifically because mm-hmm. they're not necessarily like the, they're not a full employee of the university, but they have all of the obligations of its stuff and they're half mm-hmm. student. So they're also like someone else has some <laughs> supervisory power over them and students can't just be fired or just like floated off, you know, into space if they act <laughs> up like there's, you still have to take care of that individual. So you got to do a lot of like, you know, mentoring and talking and convincing people to keep working when they don't want to do it. And also convincing them that, yeah, you can make it six weeks without wilding out. Like while we're out here, you can, you seriously can survive without partying hardcore. Mm-hmm. Believe me, you can do it. So just don't do it and don't ruin this whole thing for everybody. So that's a whole added layer. Like in CRM, you can just can people. If they're showing up drunk to work, it's kind of like go back to the hotel and you pay for the next five days. And when this 10 days over, you're gone. And that's yeah. just kind of how it goes. But you can't do that with a student. Right. And one thing that we don't get enough training on in this industry, and I would imagine in academia as well, is actual leadership skills, right? Not just mm-hmm. leading people on a field project, but just leadership skills. And if you you can't have the best of both worlds in some cases. And what I mean by that is if you want to move up in this world and you want to move into different positions and have more responsibility, well, along come along with that comes a few trade-offs, right? And I'm, I'm not seeing be a stick in the mud and, and, you know, don't ever have a drink again, go out, have a drink, but be that person that it goes home at a reasonable hour because you got to, you know, you got to work the next morning and don't overdo it. Don't think that it's some sort of macho thing. And men really fall into this. I, I hate to say, but yeah. don't make it be that macho thing where you got to drink everybody under the table and then show up for work the next morning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the drinking thing is like archaeology is like next. Like, how are we going to find the middle way? Basically, that's the thing, right? Because all of the kind of networking stuff, we've talked about this before, happens Mm -hmm. when you're interacting with people at the bar or having a cocktail afterwards or something like that, right? But then, you know, there's folks like, I I don't think you drink, Chris. Do you, you don't drink, do you? Uh, I only, only, uh, I don't drink when this is empty. So. <laughs> I just, <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't know why I thought that. I don't know why I thought that. Because <laughs> it's always off camera. <laughs> well, that's actually good. Here's, here's why you think that, because I rarely drink to excess. Like I am not out there getting, you know, just like hammered all the time. The times we've been together and we've done stuff, you've probably never seen me drunk, right? Yeah. And, well, like, I don't even know if I've ever seen you drink. Like maybe we have, <laughs> right? Maybe because I was going to excess, right? And I'm the one who needs to work on my own middle way. Yeah, you were already blacked remember. out. Yeah, because you know. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, and, and I wouldn't even know that about you, to be honest. Like, like when we're in a professional setting and in those sorts of circumstances, you know, we know how to how to act and behave. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not going to say I've never been drunk, but I certainly can. You know, it, it's not very often. Let's just put it that way. And when it does happen, it's in the it's in the right circumstances that I'm okay doing that in. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it, it's just that's the part of it. And that's why we haven't seen each other, you know, totally trash. But there are folks that are out there, right? Because I guess somehow yeah. we learned to regulate and have a drink or two and not mm-hmm. go crazy. But, you know, you know what I'm talking about. There are people that go back to their hotel and they just sit there all night long and drink. And then yeah. they're supposed to somehow function at normal or, you know, maybe every single day is a party and a bash at the bar at the hotel. And it's just like, I don't well, know. It- it goes back to all those other risks we've been talking about it, you know, on the field site when you're there the next day. Sure, you might be having a bad day and you're just concerned with you've got a hangover and you're you're dealing with that, but you could be working with somebody else. You could, you know, hit somebody's foot with your shovel. You could, you know, drop a bucket into a into another thing or something like that. I mean, you could you could do something. You might think you're the only one dealing with this, but you're impacting everybody else on the site and the people that you're working with. So it, it always has an impact that's that's far reaching. This isn't a don't drink podcast. Um, it's just <laughs> drinking is one of the if it was, I would have been kicked off a while ago. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, it's 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 one of those accelerants, right? It's yeah. a it's a risk factor that is an accelerant. And and we're not saying, you know, don't have a drink when you're on a project. I mean, don't have a drink when you're on a project, but at the, at night, yeah. you know. Don't you don't have to be you know completely sober you know you, I mean you don't have to abstain from drinking completely, mm-hmm. but just don't you know just just 
keep it keep it to a minimum. But yeah, and I've also you know. seen people's careers get impacted pretty severely oh, by sure. just alcoholism, yeah. but also people having to take and I, I when I I think years ago I remember hanging out with this crew and they were keeping it together. It's not like they were going crazy or whatever, but I was telling them like, you know, they're gonna start drug testing. And they haven't really been drug testing, but they're mm-hmm. going to eventually be forced to because I've already worked for companies that were drug testing. And so, like, it's not legal in the state to do cannabis. So you all are going to have to figure out how you're going to manage your lives. Like, I don't know what yeah. I don't know what the recommendation is. Not smoking cannabis in a state where it's illegal is the only way you can guarantee yourself not getting in trouble. And sure enough, people, they started drug testing and then there was like crew uprisings of people who refused to get tested because of their whatever amendment rights. I don't even know what amendment they were thinking, but yeah. whatever, you know, they I'm not going to do it and I can't do it. And so essentially they couldn't work and, you know, they were just basically off the company. Well, we're, we're going to continue talking about this in segment three. I think we're going to, we're going to keep Bill on here, but I, I would just say it's funny you bring up the drug testing. Cause I just sent you a text about that today because <laughs> We're talking about having on this project I've got coming up some students actually from some of Bill's programs coming out on this project to do some training. And I just found out that, so when we did this project back in September, we had to have a six panel drug test. I guess there's lower ones. And then this is, we had to have a six panel. Well, we just found out yesterday that we have to have a 12 panel DOT regulated drug test for working on this project now. And when I was talking to my representative at the mine, she's like, who you want to bring on now? And I was like, Oh, students from Berkeley. And she's like, Berkeley's in California, right? Like, are you sure yeah. they can pass a drug test? And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like you know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I definitely don't ask them about that. Like, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, folks, uh, I want everyone to raise their hand right now. <laughs> but, you know, the, to be honest, if you want to work in a professional setting, you're going to have to be used to doing things like this, especially on a mine. Yeah. A mine is almost always going to require a drug test. And this is a drug test within the last six months. So anyway keep that in mind let's take a break and come back and wrap up this discussion with dr bill white in segment three back in a minute you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. All right. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, final segment of episode 151. And I am with, as always, Paul Zimmerman. I, I keep saying Dr. Bill White, but I should be saying Dr. Paul Zimmerman as well. Uh, we just never no respect. Yeah. And then <laughs> and Dr. Bill White. I'm surrounded by doctors here. Doctor. So, <laughs> doctor. <laughs> doctor. 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 Um, we all know yeah. the, 80, the 80s movie stuff too. So, that's right. You know, that's that's right. why we're talking about world rules from the 90s and spies like us from like 1987 or something like that. I guess that tells you how old all of us are. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So, Going back to your article, Bill, you have one of your final segments here is called Archaeologist as part of a larger program. And you've got basically five different, I guess, key factors here that are aspects of a functional organizational risk management program. Why don't you just talk about this like in general mm-hmm. and then we'll we'll move on from there. So what are you what are some of your aspects of a good functional risk management program? Sure. As I mentioned, starting off, first of all, if you're if you're an academic archaeologist or you're a graduate student, you already work for an employer who has a robust <laughs> risk management system. I guarantee you, yeah. your employer has risk management. Now, the key thing that I think, you know, archaeology or any of the field sciences has to deal with their risk management of their employer is that it's not always functional for what you're doing, right? So they may have a risk management office and they may have several different job descriptions and activities and all kinds of other stuff, but they very rarely include archaeological field work. So one of the first things that I always tell all the health, all the graduate students or anyone who's interested in this whole thing is to like go online and look at your university's risk management office. Find Mm -hmm. that because you may find 
And I don't know, you know, Cal is building it, the University of California system, but you may work at an employer where they already have an archaeology risk management system. So yeah. You already can just get the binder and you already have the rules and all that stuff, right? So you might just be able to skip straight to the chase that someone before you already set this whole thing up, right? But really, the rules are to kind of think of, think more holistically about, you know, pay attention to the stuff that you've got at your institution, but learn more. Always aim to learn more about not only what you have to do for your employer, but just kind of what's going on in the whole risk management field. That's why I, I recommend the NOLS trainings, because they are set up for to do out, outdoor work, backcountry kind of work, where it's not always clear, you know, where the hazards are at, that you have to actually pay attention and be a leader and be experienced, but also in situations where it's not easy for you to get to a hospital. NOLS, mm -hmm. they, they've got trainings that will help you with your, you know, wilderness first aid and CPR and all that different stuff. So, you know, think about learning more and becoming better. And then the other thing is kind of track what you're doing. So once you've already found whether you have risk management at your institution, you're kind of reading articles and at least thinking about this and maybe taking the trainings like REI has NOLS, you know, backcountry navigation, a whole bunch of different programs. They're not very expensive. And there's a lot of REIs in the United States. And, nice. you know, I used to work for employers that didn't pay for any health and safety training. They didn't pay for anything. They would pay for like MSHA if we had a mine. They would pay for mm -hmm. Hazwopper if we were going into a, you know, a, a contaminated site, but they wouldn't do our first aid or anything like that. So I started taking these classes at you know REI in my local town. But the other piece that's kind of, even if you don't have any of that stuff, start keeping track of you know what you hear other people doing, keeping track of what's going on in your lab, keep track of you know when you're in the field, you know, because you can you can kind of put something together from this kind of information of what has ever happened, what have students ever done in your department, you know, maybe some protocols and some guidelines and stuff like that. Just something to get you started, because like I said, we're in a CRM and academia are in two different universes, right? CRM is focusing on field work and focusing on keeping people safe because it's a liability hazard. And it also right. is a it affects their bottom line by people being unable to perform work to make them money. Mm -hmm. The university has that whole thing set up too. However, a lot of times academic archaeologists and graduate students are never even seeking this information out. They have no idea that it's out there. And then they get out there and something, you know, ha the very worst thing that can happen is that you'd work for 20 years and nothing would happen. Because then you wouldn't know at all, like, no one ever reported to you they were hurt, no one ever said anything, you made it through this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And you you just then you also have this whole like, you know, illusion of safety out there because you never have had anything happen and you don't know at all what to do if anything does happen. Yeah. One of the things I always used to hear when I was in the Navy, now this was back in, you know, 93 to 97, was all the re regulations we have are written in blood. They love saying that to scare us, right? Because anytime somebody gets killed or somebody gets hurt or maimed because of, you know, something, a new regulation gets put in place if that happens to enough people. And all of a sudden you got to, you know, act and behave this way. Well, modern safety programs. And again, going back to that implementation I do on a regular basis from, you know, for everybody from companies with 15 employees to companies with 30,000 employees, that's my biggest client right now. And the one thing that they have the hardest time managing, it's its actually easy to track incidents, right? When something happens, you just write down certain key factors and you can trend that over the year. But what's really hard to write down and, and manage is near misses and hazards because nobody wants to take the time to do that, right? Like if you're mm -hmm. out in the field and something happens, you're like, man, that was close. <laughs> yeah. That's a near miss, right? And if you yeah. write that down and you track those things, you might be shocked at how preventable those are because sometimes that near miss will turn into an incident. And mm -hmm. if you had a program that was mitigating that near miss because you didn't know it was a big deal, but turns out you had a hundred of those last quarter and you should have a risk management plan around that near miss. That's how new things get added to the risks is a near miss happens often enough. And we know all the obvious ones ones, but we don't know the ones that maybe even happen every day. They're just not, they're just not that bad, but the one that is bad could kill you, you know, or your yeah. coworkers. Well, and also, you know, you're going to work on crews that have a range of like risk tolerance, right? So sure. um, another thing I'd say, if you are in a position where you're kind of, you know, in the management group, believe your employees when they say there are hazards out there, because 
I used to work for a company and they had these, they had these three trucks. They were all the same model. And I can't remember what brand they were. I know they were not an F-150 because I drive a Ford. They didn't do that, but it was <laughs> a truck, right? And it had this uh, acceleration problem where out of nowhere, when it was just in park or you were slowing down or something like that, it would just redline real fast. And if you didn't, sli- if you didn't slide it into neutral, then it would actually start accelerating forward, right? And so there was just a combination of reasons why they took them all to the dealership, which they bought them from, which anyone who's ever gotten their car serviced at the dealership, the dealership makes most of their money on servicing your car and the service mm-hmm. package. So mm-hmm. it's in their best interest to never actually fix any car like ever <laughs> until it's past the warranty, right? So they would say, oh, I've never heard of this. Oh, no, no, that's not a problem. Nothing's wrong with these cars. Yeah. You know, I was, you know, I it got to the point where I'd refuse to drive them. Because one time we were, you know, at the loading dock backed up and the person was backing the the truck up. And then all of a sudden it like, you know, started peeling out and back in reverse and they put it in neutral and the thing hit the loading dock. Right. So there was people that were on the loading dock and this is, you know, some building that used to be a paper building and they just watched it ram into the thing. And we're like, what are you doing? Like, why'd you hit? Didn't, why didn't you stop the truck? Why'd you run into the side of the building? There was another time when you were in the desert and the thing accelerated, like the person who was driving didn't know what to do. So they held on the brake and the back wheels were just spinning dirt. And someone saying, put it in neutral, put it in neutral. And they put it in neutral. So they would report this every time it happened. And there was always like, well, we took those trucks to the dealership. You all just don't know how to use them. No, no, it's just because ladies are driving it. You know, every time oh, it happens, and I'm just shaking my head like, I don't think that it's, you know, gender-specific truck. I think it happens. <laughs> and it just happens to be we have mostly women working at this company. And then eventually, like a long time later, someone who was a principal investigator was driving one of those jalopies, and it did the same thing on the freeway to them. And they were, you know, holy cow, did you know that truck accelerates? Yeah, all the while we were risking ourselves with those trucks out in the desert and no one listened. No one listened to that whole complaint. They took them to the dealership. The dealership said there was nothing wrong. They didn't get any parts repaired. They didn't try to do anything. They didn't sell them and get new trucks. They just waved it off. So that's Mm -hmm. the same thing with the near misses, right? Somebody almost gets hurt and they say, wow, that could have been dangerous. We should report that. Nah, nah, nah. You know, that wasn't an actual injury. So believing and paying attention is another huge thing that, you know, people need to think about. Well, that's one thing that's really influenced me working with this company over the last year is how other companies incentivize people to report near misses, right? Some of them have programs where they'll have a, you know, a hundred dollar gift certificate and the number of near misses you reported is the number of the number of chances you have to get that gift certificate every month equate to the number of near misses or hazards that you reported, right? And they have to go through a certain workflow and, and get to the like a complete stage before they count because sometimes it could be something that was not really a near miss and something that's already addressed. So they'll, you mm-hmm. know, they'll work that out or, or whatever the case may be. And then some companies just flat out require it. Like I've put together reporting structures where they say each each person has to do five hazard observations a week or something like that. And if you don't do five, you get a, a write-up and a warning. And if there's mm-hmm. like three weeks where you have a warning or something like that because you didn't do your five hazard observations, you're done. You're canned. Wow. So people are really concerned with near misses and hazard reporting, and we just don't have a good way to a good way to report that on my project this summer, just again, as a result of working for this company. Now we're not using the software from the company that I'm doing that implementation on. We're using WildNote like I do on all my projects. And we have some environmental health and safety forms on there, but I think I'm going to see what we have and, and, and specifically put something together for this project that will help people just pull out their smartphone or tablet or whatever they're going to use in the field and, and log a near miss real fast. Cause we can do that mm-hmm. offline and in the field. And I've just, I've never seen that on an archeology span project. I'm sure that some of the larger engineering firms that are running CRM programs will have something like that because they have it company wide, but I've never seen anything like that. We should ask Heather, our co-host on the yeah. CRM Mark podcast, if they have something for near misses. Yeah. I worked for companies that had near miss things, but it was on paper. So it was harder to yeah, see, that's that's always the challenge. I mean, we did our we did our best, right? Because it's not probable for you to have no injuries and no near misses for an entire year. So you got to be counting the near misses. But it wasn't consistent because right. you know everyone had, was empowered to do it, but mm-hmm. it's a piece of paper, and everyone had the paper. But it takes ten minutes, and you forget like a few yeah. minutes later, and then you know you don't do it. So we weren't very consistent. 
Yeah. Let me ask a kind of naive question here. Are there any firms? I mean, I would assume it would only be big firms that have that, that have, you know, compliance officers or safety officers monitoring projects as people are actually in the field. That's not something that happens in CRM right now. Only big companies, I would say. Does it even happen in big companies? Is what I'm wondering. Well, I saw a talk at the SHA where they, they had that. And I'll have to look back. I can send you all the information. But yeah, somebody gave a talk how they had a rotating system of safety officers. There was a couple of people that had the training so that mm-hmm. they could keep going the project. So that way, one person's not bogged down being the one who's constantly monitoring and nannying everyone, everyone's behavior. But like, you know, they, they did have, and that was one of the things that they put in in place during COVID to make sure that people were wearing their masks and staying no, safe and, and apart. Right. So like, I think it, and they weren't a huge multi-state company. They were hmm, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe one BLM branch or something like that. I'd have to look back. It was, it wasn't a huge corporation. It was, they just gave three or four people the training and then it was their turn. They rotated mm-hmm. a couple days a piece to watch, make sure everyone was staying safe. And they also had no, people contract COVID from the field and they work through the whole thing. There you go. And I think they were even doing work in North Dakota where it was peaking, you know? So mm-hmm. that's one thing, Heather on the Sierra Mark podcast, our co-host over there, she works with a large CRM firm in Southern California and she's a manager down there. And she said they immediately put in some, some pretty rigorous safety procedures and risk management plans around COVID. And they, as of yet, have had no one contracted in the field as, re- as a result of field work. Yeah. And to kind of put that into perspective, LA County is like, ground zero you know what i'm saying oh yeah yeah they that's where she's at. Were yeah. constantly high there's a lot of people who live yeah. there there's a lot of really you know multi-family houses so like mm-hmm. their hospital system got overwhelmed this last mm-hmm. winter mm-hmm. yeah yeah so i got one question that's not related to this conversation though that's been going through my head and <laughs> i don't do know it. if i don't know if paul can help me on it <laughs> apple watch get it or don't oh some text chris is the apple watch guy i don't have, what have you got? Watches. Oh, I've got I've a had, tattoo. <laughs> I have an ancient. No. Oh, you can just use your phone. Yeah. yeah, I know you have one. I've had almost every Apple Watch since the year they came out. Okay, and, well, this isn't the good question then, because there's one person <laughs> who's the superstar, and then one person that doesn't even have a watch. I've got an old Vivo Fit Garmin, mm-hmm. just step tracker, step counter. That's all it really is. Uh-huh. I mean, it also it does blood oxygen too, but. I would say a smartwatch in general, because uh, I like, let's bring tech back into this podcast just for the last three minutes here. <laughs> a, a smartwatch in general is a good idea. The one that you choose really should just depend on what ecosystem you live in, right? I live in an Apple ecosystem, right? I'm surrounded by Apple products, so it works best with my Apple system. When I was younger, I my, the first house like stereo I ever bought was JVC. So when mm-hmm. I bought a six disc changer or whatever it was with the little cassettes, it was JVC. When I bought a DVD player, it was JVC because it all worked well together. So if you're in a certain ecosystem, you should pick up the device that matches that. Typically, you should pick up the smartwatch that matches your phone, to be honest, or one that works with your phone. Other mm-hmm. things will work with iPhones besides just Apple Watches, but Apple Watches work best with iPhones, of course. And and the newer one, I'll tell you what, they've just got some really cool things like the always-on <laughs> clock. Um, I'm not trying to sell it to you, Bill. But right, uh, right those, who are listen- those who are listening can't see the camera zoom in and go into this like 4K video, but that's Chris. He's, he's in 4K <laughs> now, and he's telling us about this quintessential Apple style. Uh, I'm just, I'm just telling you, I use this thing every day. I wear it every day. I sleep with it. I just, it, it, it notifies me <laughs> Too of much things. information. <laughs> I just, I've got an altimeter right here that shows me my elevation. If I click on that, I've got a nice little oh. compass right here. There's a lot of really cool field features I use this for as well. And it's rugged. I've never put a screen protector or any sort of bumper on these things and I've never had a problem. So Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, asked right. the Apple Watch. I'm going to tie this back to one aspect of what we've been discussing before <laughs> to try to underrail this. So many of the, uh, the the new smartwatches, definitely it's a, a major selling feature of the Apple Watches, have, you know, heart rate monitors mm-hmm. and blood oxygen monitors like, like the one that you're wearing, Bill. That feedback data to, you know, back to your phone, back to whatever that could also be used as a source of gathering data and gathering information on, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily uh, 
something dangerous, somebody almost runs you over in the truck, nobody actually gets hurt. Mm-hmm. But it certainly could gather information about, you know, when people get sick, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's sick from some virus or sick from overexertion. You could use that as a, as a data source for that. And I'm sure that we'll start seeing that in certain situations too. Yeah, that's actually really brilliant. Uh, for years, I used to work in Arizona and I know like my own body when I get too much when it gets too hot right like i know Mm -hmm. the signs of when i need to slow down and stuff like that and then working with several people really closely i could see in their face when it was time for them to go to the truck and sit in the ac for a little while right Uh but i never when none of us ever had a ekg to see if our heart rate is accelerated or to see if you know it's irregular heartbeats to know if we ever were actually showing the early signs of you know heat stress Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Yeah, some some of the newer features of, you know, a lot of smartwatches, and I just I can only speak to the one that I have, but this is the Apple Watch Series 6. So it's the one that came out in fall of 2020. And it's got the blood oxygen monitor. So mm-hmm. it will it will read that when it's out of tolerance for a normal human being and it learns what your levels are in normal circumstances when it's out of tolerance. Let's you know you can do the EKG. And if you have an abnormal heart rhythm, it will let you know that. Also, it's got fall detection. So if you have a hard hit mm-hmm. and I've hit That's my watch yeah. on like the, I, I live in an RV, right? And I'm not a small <laughs> guy. So I often run into the walls and... <laughs> That's not my wife is like laughing at me right now. That's not that's not a hard enough hit to hit the fall detection. I don't think I've I've maybe once I've had a hard enough hit on this watch to actually activate the fall detection because they have a lot of metrics around how you fall, right? So it's not just hitting your watch on the table. It's I legit had like a like an impact fall where I put my hands out or something like that. And that can happen in archaeology. And if you don't have people around you, if you got separated or you happen to be out there by yourself, don't do that. But if you are, if you don't respond to the fall detection, it will call 911 and send emergency personnel to your location. So, so uh, I, does your wife have a Apple Watch too? She does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, my wife is family. like anti. Yeah, she doesn't want me to get it. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's the anti gadget. That's right. <laughs> All right, Bill. Well, that's about the end of our podcast. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, hey, check out the uh, article if you can. I don't think I can share it on the show notes because yeah, it is I, behind a paywall. <laughs> we will. Maybe I'll talk on this podcast again about the situation of the you know paywalls and stuff like that because it's yeah. getting. It's getting to the point where, you know, the problem is we're here right now sharing this information in real time. We could actually make a workshop on this with the authors of that. And we could all work together and televise this and everything and put it together for mm-hmm. you know free. Whereas we grind it out to write these articles and then they keep anyone from even hearing about it. And so we're kind of at the point where it's like, what's yeah. the use, right? Because I can yeah. just do whatever I feel like on Zoom or wherever, Zencaster. And I kind of don't really even actually need that anymore. Right. So. Yeah. With the small number of people that actually have uh, relatively speaking that actually have access to this article behind the paywall. I mean, it's less than probably 5,000 people. If I had to guess, I'm not sure what the membership is, but it's less than that amount of people and and an even fewer number of people that actually is concerned with this. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. so your audience for this is, is to be honest, pretty small because of that paywall. And you're right. It's like, does it come down to, hey, I just want to put the information out and get out and, you know, talk about this like we're doing on this podcast or have behind the paywall academic journal just become places for professors to get tenure because you need to publish. Yeah. And, and so that's what I'm talking about. And we'll see if this podcast or any of the, you know, driving traffic to it, if we actually see a disproportionate level of downloads for this sure. series, you know what I'm saying? Specifically for this article, too, that would be. Yeah interesting to see people download this thing because that'll be some more metrics i can come on here and talk yeah in six months how many people actually downloaded this thing so we can talk about that because i guarantee you the viewership of this podcast will be higher over the next six months than the people who download that well we should we should double down and and uh talk about this on the crmr podcast that way we can talk about it on a show that was referenced in the article and just have it be circular. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's do it. We'll do it. Oh, man. All right. Well, thanks a lot for coming yeah, on, Bill. Thanks. Paul, thanks. Thanks for joining me as usual. <laughs> thanks, guys. Good seeing you. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash architect. 
Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And, and it was, was edited, edited by Rachel Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Oh, oh, oh,